This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Today we're going to turn um, with this last concluding um, forum, or session rather, we're going to focus on the topic of U.S. sanctioned countries and the Summit of the Americas. We have four, four excellent um, panelists, which I will introduce briefly. And we're going to further examine the consequences of um, the um, U.S. policy related to these countries, but specifically related to the Summit of the Americas, the um, probable um, um, intention of the U.S. to not um, invite um, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba. Um, so we'll get into that issue in, 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 in more detail. We've had already a rich discussion by several of our prior panels on this issue, um, including um, Richard, um, Ricardo Herrera, um, and others. Um, at this time, I want to briefly um, introduce our uh, panelists. Our first um, panelist will be Neil Harrington, the Senior VP for the Americas at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, Tim Pageant, um, the Americas editor for the um, Miami-based affiliate of um, NPR, WLRN. Um, Abe Lowenthal, um, Professor Emeritus uh, for um, International Relations at USC, and Richard Feinberg, um, Professor for International Political Economy at UC San Diego School of um, Policy and Strategy. We're gonna, um, we're gonna start our conversation with Neil. Um, I wanna highlight that um, Neil, um, in addition to his responsibilities for the America's portfolio um, at the US Chamber, um, has executive management responsibilities um, related to programs, councils, and other hemispheric policy initiatives there. Um, he is also president of the U.S.-Cuba Business Council, as well as having other responsibilities uh, at the chamber. So at this time, Neil, why don't you take it away? Well, first of all, I really want to thank you and the, the Institute of the Americas, uh, Richard Feinberg, for this kind invitation. Um, yeah, so I, my name is Neil Harrington. I run the uh, Americas Division, as Richard said, here at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We uh, are focused across the region from Canada to Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. Um, I, th I think one of the reasons I've received this kind invitation today is, is we are, um, everyone's, I think a lot of, there's been a lot of talk this morning about certainly the focus on the Sun of the Americas and what that means. Um, we as the chamber have uh, been invited by the, the Biden administration, the State Department to host what's known as the CEO Summit, which is the unique private sector holder, private, uh, private sector stakeholder event associated with the summit. I think as may have been talked about, there's uh, besides the leader summit, there's there's the CEO summit, there's the civil society summit and the youth summit. Um, so we're really excited about that. I think there are um, uh, certainly will be focused in uh, Los Angeles on aligning, I think what we see as, as key priorities the private sector has with those of um, the, the governments of the region. And I think for all of us, I think we can all agree, it starts with um, recovery from the pandemic and making recovery as inclusive and sustainable as possible. So uh, in Los Angeles, we'll be focused on um, issues like the green energy transition, the um, uh, bridging the digital divide and digital transformation, um, rebuilding resilient health infrastructure uh, across the, the, the Americas. Um, we're focused on a, uh, em empowering SMEs, and I know that will be part of the conversation today, um, and what we can do as, as the hemispheric private sector, starting in the U.S., to empower SMEs around the hemisphere, including in 
countries um, that uh, are suffering from uh, authoritarian governance. Um, and then we'll obviously have a vibrant trade agenda. That's what we do. And, and uh, here at the chamber is one of our big areas of focus. Um, and so I'm um, looking forward to taking the questions today and engaging in, in uh, a really fun discussion with fellow panelists. So Richard, I guess I'll kick it back to you. Thank you, Neil. Uh, at this time, it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce Tim Pageant. As I mentioned, uh, he's the America's editor for the um, Miami NPR affiliate, NLR NLRN. Uh, Tim has in incredible experience uh, covering Latin America, the Caribbean, um, over the years. Um, he's been active um, as a journalist for over 30 years. Um, he has um, interviewed over 20 heads of state. Um, he's a um, um, he's got a degree from Northwestern's uh, School of Journalism, and he's also studied in Caracas. Um, we're very um, uh, pleased that you could join us, Tim, and look forward to your perspectives related to um, uh, you, the sanctioned countries and the, um, some of the Americas. Tim, take it away. Well, thank you, Richard. And uh, it's always good to uh, be involved with anything with, with Richard Feinberg. Um, thank you again uh, for inviting me to this uh, very timely, obviously, forum. Uh, the key word in your, your presentation or your, your kind introduction uh, for me there was uh, Miami. <laughs> I think that's about all one needs to say, uh, because Miami these days and, and for a long time is, is pretty much uh, the, the factor, the most important factor in, in almost any decision about Latin America and the Caribbean that any U.S. administration, Republican or Democratic, uh, tends to make. And that is surely, I think, the case right now. Uh, the Biden administration and President Biden uh, are probably not going to invite the so-called Troika of tyranny, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua to the summit, uh, in large part, well, for the obvious reasons that they are uh, a very anti-democratic presence in, in the hemisphere and, and uh, uh, in, in inviting uh, what I called in, in my weekly uh, column this week, uh, sort of Putin mini-me's in, in, in the new world isn't exactly... Uh, uh, you know, a, a great way to, uh, to start off a, a summit of the Americas that in, in many respects is going to be a, a celebration of democracy as it's intended to be. Um, but I think realistically, in terms of real politic, one of the big reasons the Biden administration just uh, has a little, if no choice, but not to invite uh, these three regimes to the summit of the Americas is that uh, whatever good neighbor policy points, he might score it with the rest of the hemisphere by inviting them. Uh, he would, that would be far outweighed by all of the um, domestic polling points that he would lose if he were to invite them, particularly here in Miami, particularly in Florida amongst the Cuban and Latino communities. And so it's, uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that the administration has, uh, as, as it appears, uh, decided not to invite these three regimes. And I think the, the question then that, you know, that we all need to ask is, um, aside from real politic, is that the best thing for the hemisphere, for the Americas, for inter-American uh, 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 procedure and, 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 and um, uh, engagement? Uh, as everyone knows by now this week, uh, Mexican President uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and other left-leaning leaders in, in the hemisphere have said that they might boycott the summit if, if Cuban, Venezuela, Nicaragua are not invited. Um, as I said also in my column this week, uh, I think maybe seven years ago, they might have gotten a sympathetic ear when those three regimes perhaps didn't seem as, 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 as sinister to pro-democracy advocates as, as they do now. 
And I, I think as, as Richard Feinberg knows me well, he knows that I always err after 30 years of covering this region, I always err on the side of inter-American engagement. And, but in this case, I can understand why the Biden administration finds it very hard to invite these three regimes to the summit because to do so, you have to at least give a U.S. administration some uh, political feasibility to do so. And these three regimes in the past few years, at least since uh, you know the, the 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 summit in 2015, right after President Obama normalized relations with Cuba, in in those intervening years, these three regimes have done nothing except give U.S. administrations uh, nothing but excuses not to invite them to a U.S. hosted Summit of the Americas. And uh, again, however, I, th- I think a good discussion we can have is, again, is that the best thing for, uh, for inter-American engagement, for the health of inter-American relations? So I, I look forward to discussing that with you. Thank you, Tim, for your thoughts. At this time, um, I would like to um, introduce Abe Lowenthal. Um, as I mentioned, he's a professor emeritus at um, University of Southern California. Um, with, in focusing on international relations. He's an expert um, on Latin America. Uh, he is um, active with the Wilson Center's Latin American program and was one of the key founders of the Inter-American Dialogue. Also founded the Pacific Council for International Policy in LA and is an influential policy analyst and advisor uh, with a focus on Latin America. At this time, um, I'd like to introduce Abe. Um, Abe, uh, take it away. I do want to thank the Institute of the Americas Richard Kai uh, and my longtime and esteemed colleague Richard Feinberg for inviting me to this timely and well-organized discussion. A timely and well-organized discussion of an event that could or could not be timely, but probably is not all that well-organized. I can't help but think, and certainly Richard Feinberg must be thinking, how very different things are in the Americas, throughout the Americas, than they were in 1994 when he played such an important role in conceptualizing and organizing the first and quite successful Summit of the Americas. This year's underlying challenge is to take into account uh, the uh, things which over these uh, many years have changed in very important ways uh, that have to be taken into account, while also taking into account what has not changed and still remains important. And finally, to determine what issues and challenges are most important in the Americas today, and of those, which of those might be ripe for more effective common approaches and cooperative programs and which, to the contrary, involve such deep conflicts of interests and perspectives that they need first to be discussed and at least move toward resolution by improved communications and understanding on all sides, requiring a modicum of mutual respect. Among the most important changes to be considered are the decline of and challenges to effective democratic governance, not only or even primarily in the three uh, most overtly autocratic governments, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, 
but also in El Salvador and Haiti and Honduras, and also in many other nations, including the United States of America, where democratic norms and institutions are, have been and are being threatened, attacked, and undermined, where the balance among branches of government has been altered, where non-governmental organizations have become more powerful and diverse, both uh, in a positive way and in, in a negative way, and where big money has come to play such a vast role in determining policy outcomes. It would be healthy, and it might well be more effective if the Summit of the Americas could address these common issues, how its components are being addressed, how they could be addressed more effectively. And it would be good to learn from each other's experiences. And if the governments of the Americas today cannot altogether address these central sets of issues, surely non-governmental organizations should be strongly encouraged to do so. A second major change, a trend over these years that has been exacerbated by financial and economic instabilities, uh, gross corruption in both the public and private sectors, and the plagues of COVID-19 and other public health uh, threats, uh, is the worsening inequalities in and among our societies in terms of income, civic and food security, in terms of access to affordable health care, of working conditions, hope for improved and more secure jobs and healthier lifestyles. Again, these are challenges that affect all the countries of the Americas, including the richest and most powerful. Honest, open exchanges about what is being done and what could be done to alleviate inequities, deprivation, resentments, apathy, and anger and to build toward facing those issues and moving toward the values and vision that existed in Miami in 1994 would provide a very worthy agenda for the Los Angeles summit, very much including its non-governmental and private components. And I think including all the governments of the Americas. That would provide the basis for the kind of narrative and the kind of discussion that really might make a contribution in a troubled period. A third big change since 1994, and linked with what I just said, is the degree of relative decline in the reputation and influence of the United States, which no longer projects a clear and compelling vision, nor commands a leadership role in confronting tough shared problems. And I am not making a partisan statement here. I think this is something that has been happening from administration to administration. Uh, I think Trump made a significant impact on worsening things, but uh, he was also uh, the, the uh, uh, result and not simply the cause of some of this decline. This is a concern that I think all of us feel one way or another. And the summit should be an opportunity, ojalá, uh, uh, to take modest steps to reverse this decline, not by fiat or rhetoric, but by projecting a combination of empathy, competence, commitment, self-confidence, and yet humility 
uh, in uh, dialogue with all the countries of the region. The US government should now be trying to confront issues and differences of perspective rather than trying to impose uh, its point of view, either because it thinks we can do so or because it fears domestic political consequences in a few districts of Florida. The Los Angeles summit obviously has not yet taken place. Who knows? I, I certainly hope it will, but uh, who knows? But on the evidence to date, it's hard to be confident that the underlying issues will be adequately addressed. Responding to the questions that were posed, I do think it would be good if non-governmental organizations and the private economic sectors from all the countries of the Americas could address their experiences together in an inclusive way without exclusions or needless name calling. And I think that is something that could still be uh, rescued uh, in terms of some of the panels uh, in the uh, parallel uh, meetings. Uh, the, third, the final question we were asked had to do with procedures for the future. I do think that all the governments of the Americas should discuss and try to agree first on whether summits should be a regular feature of inter-American diplomacy, whether the cost-benefit uh, ratio is continues to be positive, and if so, how often they should be held, how the agendas should be established, and what policies should be in vogue regarding participation, uh, uh, which I think should not be defined by simply the host country, but through a process that makes it possible for issues to be identified and then discussed openly, uh, rather than leaving uh, uh, these decisions to the host country. Finally, to end on a positive note, as a Californian, I think it's great that the future of the Americas will be discussed here in global California. California is in so many ways a product of multiple vast interactions and mixtures from throughout the Americas and across the world. And I believe it may come to play an even more important role than it is now, and it is now playing an important role in dealing with so many salient issues, security, climate change, communications, technologies, and policies, public health and biomedicine, and fruitful social, economic, and political integration, as well as other issues. And the Summit of the Americas will make a contribution to the development of that capacity in California, and for that, I'm grateful. Thank you, Abe, for those. Um... Um, words of wisdom and perspective. Uh, appreciate uh, your participation. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, Richard Feinberg. As I mentioned, Richard is a professor for international political economy at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He's enjoyed a distinguished career as a diplomat, policy advisor, corporate consultant, university professor, and he's been author of over 200 books and articles on international relations with an emphasis on Latin America. One of Richard's biggest achievements has been that um, he was the principal architect of the 1994 Miami Summit of the Americas under the Clinton administration. He's also written over 300 reviews um, on Western Hemisphere books um, for the uh, Foreign Affairs magazine. At this time, it gives me a great pleasure to um, introduce Richard to our virtual stage. Richard, take it away.
Yeah, thanks very much, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with uh, Neil, Tim, and Abe. Abe, I loved your your final remarks. I seem to remember you wrote a book on uh, on California and the global economy. Do I remember that correctly? Sure. Yes. No, that, and, and I do know the folks in Los Angeles are very excited about this opportunity. They plan to showcase uh, all the California themes that Abe mentioned uh, and try to demonstrate that uh, at the city and, and county level in California, uh, perhaps in some ways better than at the federal level, uh, the United States is confronting a lot of these key problems that the hemisphere is concerned with. Uh, I thought what I would do here is to talk a little bit of history about the, the presence or absence thereof of non-democratic regimes at these summits. So I'll take you back to uh, actually 1993, and uh, uh, Al Gore uh, is flying down to Mexico to deliver a post-NAFTA uh, set of remarks, and uh, I'm sitting around with some others and preparing his remarks. And it had been decided that Al Gore would announce that President Clinton was inviting uh, his counterparts in the Americas to a summit of the Americas uh, back um, the following year. I might point out, by the way, why, why did the administration think about summits? And a lot of that had to do with because summits were, are, were and are occurring everywhere. Every other region has them. Of course, the EU meet every six months at the senior levels. Uh, Asia has its APEC. Uh, and so for the hemisphere not to have a summit would be to uh, be left out of global regional summitry. Anyway, so we were going ahead with that. And Gore is putting together his final remarks. And the president invites all the countries of the Americas. And one Richard Feinberg chimes in and says, shouldn't we insert all the democratically elected leaders of the Western hemisphere? And in my mind, actually, was not the issue of Cuba, because Cuba was so far outside of, of the norms. And moreover, with Fidel Castro, you could never think of inviting Fidel Castro to any meeting because he would immediately be the centerpiece of any meeting that he attended. Such was his personal charisma and the media uh, love of, uh, of him for their own purposes. So no way could Cuba even be considered. What I was thinking about actually was Fujimori in Peru, that by inserting only democratically elected leaders, that, that was a shot across the bow saying to Fujimori, don't think about uh, any more of those or, or autocratic uh, maneuvers that you have indulged in in the past, because if you do, you're not getting invited to the Miami summit. So actually, that was the thinking, uh, rather than uh, in, in revolving around Cuba. Uh, so then uh, uh, the, the next important event uh, with regard to the democracy is in Quebec. And in Quebec, uh, under the Canadians, of course, uh, in 2001, um, the Canadians uh, insert language in various places saying summits should only be attended by democratically elected leaders. And then out of uh, the Quebec summit came the famous Inter-American Democratic Charter, which I always carry my green book, <laughs> the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And that says... Uh, very explicitly, and this uh, has been signed by you know, the countries throughout the region, uh, it says, it mentions that in Quebec City at the summit, a democracy clause was uh, inserted uh, that any, in, any unconstitutional alteration or interruption of the democratic order uh, would mean that that state's government uh, would face an insurmountable, insurmountable obstacle to participation 
in the Summit of the Americas process. Uh, so that is in 2001, a very explicit link between democracy uh, and summit participation, agreed on by everyone. Okay. Uh, fast forward. At the summit in Cartagena in 2012, attended by, uh, by Obama, uh, the other Latins make it very clear, including the chair at the time, the president of Colombia uh, and others, Cuba's got to be there. This was because uh, Fidel was no longer on the scene, of course. Now is Raul. Raul seemed more pragmatic. He, had, uh, he was entering into a, a certain uh, process of, of change and reform, however, uh, halting and modest. Uh, but so uh, they, the Latin said, the moment has come to include Cuba. And they said, and initially the United States didn't take this seriously. Ah, come on, they're just talking. They don't really mean it. But then, yeah, they made it clear that they meant it. They were not going to attend the next summit in Panama in 2015 unless Raul Castro was there. So the U.S. had to decide, no more summits or include the Cubans. That factor was an important, at least timing factor, for why Obama, the summit was in April or May in in, uh, in Panama in December, just a few months earlier, Obama famously announces together with Raul Castro uh, the reestablishment of diplomatic relations between the two countries and a general thaw in relations. So it was in the context of that thaw in relations that then in Panama, uh, the, the two, uh, uh, Raul Castro and President Obama uh, could meet, could talk, uh, in, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a civil way. And uh, famously, Raul says to Obama, uh, uh, of course, we don't like the history of American foreign policy uh, towards Cuba or anywhere else, but you are a man uh, that, we, that has integrity and authenticity. And if you know something about Cuban uh, political rhetoric, those are, those are powerful words. They mean a lot in the Cuba case. So Raul was uh, heaping high praise on his uh, counterpart uh, in the United States. Then Cuba again attends the next summit. Now at the next summit, uh, President um, Trump decided not to attend. He sends his vice president. So Raul says, okay, then I'm not gonna go either. But so he sent his uh, foreign minister, uh, long-term foreign minister, uh, Bruno Rodriguez. Uh, in both summits, the Cubans did not try to be spoilers. They did not try to disrupt proceedings. Uh, they made their various points like any other leader. The only sort of fireworks was when Trump gratuitously attacked Cuba. Uh, and then Bruno felt that, well, of course he had to respond. That's how things work uh, in diplomacy. Uh, but otherwise the Cubans behaved um, reasonably well. They, 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 were not, they were not spoilers. So that's really where things stood as we entered uh, the, the Los Angeles summit. Uh, the Latins had been accustomed to Cuba attending uh, in a non-confrontational and matter of fact way. Um, what had changed was, okay, and to some degree, as was mentioned uh, earlier uh, by, uh, by Tim, uh, a disappointment with progress on the island. Uh, but uh, the main change is, was Trump and then, uh, and then um, Biden, who's basically continued Trump's policies for reasons we discussed in previous panels. Um, so it became more, there, there would seem to be a contradiction now 
between a U.S. policy which says, okay, it's okay to sit down uh, with the Cuban government uh, at the same time as we ha- we've maintained this policy of really quite extreme uh, hostility um, and, uh, and, and isolation. So that, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of uh, where we are. Now, who decides who gets to attend? And uh, I think as Abe mentioned, uh, there's not a really clear uh, process to who decides. Ultimately, the host country issues the visas, right? That's the ultimate uh, choice. But uh, it's supposed to be some sort of um, combination of the host country. The th- and there is something called the troika within the summit process. The, the present chair, the previous chair, which in this case then would be uh, Peru, Lima, and then the next chair, not yet named yet. So that troika would have some decision-making process. And then the OAS uh, as a whole, or the secretary general uh, might also, uh, but uh, have a say in and who gets to attend and who doesn't. Is it just everybody? Uh, is it the democratic charter, which says, okay, these three countries really shouldn't be attending? Uh, under those uh, criteria. Uh, so, uh, but from the point of view of Latin America, they may not know about these niceties of who decides. What they see is Cuba was at the previous two summits. Uh, the world did not end. Uh, you know, the, summit, the, summit proce- the summit went about its pr- processes more or less as though Cuba really weren't, wasn't there. Uh, and, and, uh, and yet the United States now says, no, it's totally unacceptable. Uh, we have to exclude Cuba. And uh, part of the problem there is what the Latins perceive is, is that this is not about Cuba. It's not about foreign policy. It's about U.S. domestic politics. And you combine that with the, the fact that it's in L.A., which like Abe, I support. But, you know, if you're a little cynical Latin American, you say, well, this has to do with Democratic Party politics uh, because the Democrats control L.A. And this will be a chance for uh, for Biden and his team to sort of uh, whip up support among the very large Latino population uh, in in LA. The other problem that that I think uh, from the Latin point of view, just as they see that Biden uh, was stymied on Cuba because of domestic politics, Abe mentioned the increased power of certain interest groups in the United States. Uh, similarly, uh, where's the trade policy? Uh, in 1994, of course, the centerpiece was the free trade area of the Americas uh, coming off of the NAFTA experience. I should emphasize, by the way, as Neil, I'm sure remembers, the FTAA was not a U.S. imposition, quite the opposite. That, uh, And I can tell you, I was there. The, the Clinton White House really was not enthusiastic. Uh, the NAFTA debates had been bruising enough. They were not interested in a new trade initiative, certainly on, on the scale of the entire Western Hemisphere. But the Latin American leaders, some key leaders, insisted. They said, this is what we want to make this a successful summit. And so the White House had an effect to capitulate. Now, they, they handled that by pushing back the uh, negotiating timetable uh, until after they would be out of office. Uh, but nevertheless, they accepted the FTA as, as the centerpiece uh, for the summit. Uh, so I do think, actually, uh, we say only there's only three month, three weeks away. Three weeks is a lot of time, actually. Uh, uh, my hope is that the administration, uh, all this chit chat about uh, leaders not attending, that that'll be a wake up call uh, in the White House uh, for them to say, hey, you know what? I know we're busy in the Ukraine and elsewhere, but a great power has to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And we really need to put some meat on, on some of these initiatives. They've, they've already outlined some of the areas that they want to tackle, which make, a, make for a good agenda, uh, immigration, uh, 
healthcare and the pandemic, renewable energies, uh, global supply chains. Those are all good topics. They could build a consensus, I think, around all of those, but they have to go beyond rhetoric and say, here's precisely some resources and some programs uh, that we're going to work with other countries to move these initiatives forward. There, there, there's still time to do that. Finally, though, what to do about, about the issue of Cuba. So, um, you know, my sense is that other governments are, are not really not going to attend. They're just trying to put pressure on the U.S. government to put some meat on the bones of the agenda. AMLO, uh, he said he would send his foreign minister. You know, AMLO, he, AMLO has to be the center of attention. You know, if you watch his Mañanitas, he's a guy who's very narcissistic. It has to always be all about him. So why, why go to a multilateral meeting in, in which he'll be one of a, a number of leaders? Not interesting to him. Now, unless uh, Biden could somehow polish the apple, uh, my thought was, suggest to uh, AMLO that he hold a big demonstration at the Hollywood Bowl. Tens of thousands of screaming uh, Mexican-Americans going, AMLO, AMLO, AMLO. Yeah, AMLO might attend uh, for that experience at least. Uh, go to a baseball game personally with Biden. That might be, be of interest to, to AMLO. Bolsonaro, I think he, he also wants his moment in the sun. Uh, he's been shunned by this White House. I understand the reasons for that having to do with economics and energy policy. But you know, sometimes in multilateral diplomacy, you have to do some things that are unpleasant, uh, be seen with people you don't particularly like uh, if you want multilateralism to work. I think the administration is just gonna have to offer Bolsonaro something uh, in that regard. Finally, uh, I don't think the administration is likely to reverse ground for domestic political reasons, as already been pointed out uh, on Cuba. Uh, I think Venezuela is a separate issue because of the Guaido thing. Uh, nobody wants to see uh, Daniel Ortega. Uh, my slightly facetious uh, proposal would be, yes, invite Daniel Ortega and then immediately put him in handcuffs just like he's done to this entire opposition. Uh, but Cuba is the more serious issue. Now, suppose AMLO were able to go to Havana and maybe even uh, 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 Nicaragua and Caracas and say, hey, why don't you, we need, a, we, we need something. How about if you each release some prominent political prisoners? And then I could go to Washington and I could go to my, my political base and say, look, okay, I can go now to Los Angeles because I've been able to extract from my good friends uh, in those three capitals uh, some important political reform and some freedom of some long-suffering political prisoners. So that's the Feinberg solution to the current conundrum uh, on, uh, on, on the three uh, authoritarians and the summit of the Americas. My final point, um, and I'd like to hear Neil talk maybe a little more about this. Uh, the, the summits these days are three-legged three uh, stools, if you will. You have, of course, the leaders meeting, which is the main focus. But uh, as Neil mentioned, you have the, uh, the uh, CEO business summit. Uh, I think this is the fourth. Uh, there, there were others before that are less formal, but they've been formalized uh, in the last three times. And uh, I've attended all of them. They've been so much fun. Uh, we had in Cartagena, Shakira. And then in Panama, we had Mark Zuckerberg. And then in Lima, we had Ivanka Trump, uh, Trump, who um, all three attended the CEO summit, as well as other activities. So, uh, but also uh, in Latin America, you know, the 
governments come and go with such rapidity, uh, ministers are constantly turning over. There's a real problem with continuity. The private sector is there. The private sector provides continuity uh, in policy and of course in, in economics. So I think the importance of the CEO summit in, in giving some continuity to inter-American affairs uh, is very important. And I'm sure Neil will do a great job in putting together uh, the fourth uh, CEO business summit. And then Abe talked about civil society and you, that's what you have in the civil society forums. Um, I've attended those as well as, you know, some are, some are, some of the exchanges are better than others, uh, but it certainly gives an opportunity to all the different civil society organizations on just about any issue you could think of, uh, anti-corruption, uh, tra transparency and, uh, uh, digitalization, uh, gender issues, uh, women's rights, environmental concerns, uh, indigenous issues, uh, etc. There are forums for all of those issues, and uh, both the, the the CEO summit and the civil society uh, forums uh, create space for interchanges between those groups and. Uh, governmental officials, ministerial, and, and in some cases, actually leaders meetings. I do recall very specifically about a dozen representatives from civil society had a meeting with President Obama at the time, and he actually incorporated uh, at least one of those ideas in his later public remarks. Uh, so uh, we, we, the media don't focus so much, but I think there, there are real opportunities there. And so uh, even if the three authoritarian governments aren't represented, uh, why not give opportunities to their civil society organizations and private sector uh, to attend those relevant uh, uh, panels, um, enabling them at least to maintain some visibility, uh, to network and build their international linkages, uh, and to participate uh, in, in, in the various debates. And I'd be interested in hearing from Neil, if he would, uh, to explain how the uh, CEO Business Summit in Los Angeles uh, is likely to handle uh, the possible presence from uh, private sector representatives uh, um, at or around uh, from, from these three countries. So thank you very much. Thank you, Richard, for that uh, rich perspective. And also um, for uh, resurfacing uh, the Feinberg solution <laughs> to the impasse we have related to the summit. Um, um, we've got time for some questions. Also, I want to encourage the um, the participants in this forum to um, post your question. We'll try to get to as many as possible. But I want to start with the central question because we've um, we have spoken about this um, in in other panels and we've touched on it um, through the various presentations by um, each of you um, on the fact that it is quite likely, as Tim indicated, that for domestic political reasons, um, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, and Cuba will not be um, invited. Um, and the question here is, how does the U.S. manage that diplomatic fallout? And what will be the, what will be the, um, the implications of that um, in the future? Um, and uh, I'd like to get some thoughts on that. Richard has, has offered some thoughts in his last presentation. I'd like to hear from, from Neil, from Abe, um, um, and, um, and Tim, um, what some of your thoughts are. Yeah, I guess I'll kick it off, Richard. I, I, um, and, and thank you. I, I love living, listening to the presentations of my, of, um, my, my colleagues and friends. Uh, and I couldn't help but think through that whole, the, each of the presentations, uh, you know, um, we're, we're in touch with the Biden administration a lot on CEO summit planning, but, but I do not envy the set of decisions that they have to make in, in deciding whether or not to invite these three countries. And I, and I, I would imagine 
there are people in both camps in the administration. I don't know that for sure, but that's that's what I would imagine. And and the reason is, you know, I, I look at us as a business organization. Many may know that for twenty plus years we have um, we have approached we have had a pro engagement approach towards Cuba, and um, we've sought to end the U.S. embargo towards Cuba. And why is that? Well, we've for these two decades, we've had a very strong opinion that we we kind of have we have two mandates as U.S. business community. One is enhancing market access for our members. Um, obviously, Cuba being a, a a market to which our members uh, did not have access for many years, uh, don't have much more today than they had 60 years ago. Um, but the second is we we fundamentally believe we have a, a mission to also improve the plight of the Cuban people, and we and we we very much believe that. Um, the the intersection of free enterprise and and democracy is real, and that you can create a virtuous circle if you give entrepreneurs and others on on the island and, and elsewhere the opportunity um, to earn their own living, to um, start their own business, hire their own people, um, and that that sows the seeds. Of, of liberty, liberty as it were. And, and I think that we have anecdotes to show that that was indeed what, what happened when President Obama um, approached Rapprochement in, in, in 2014, in 2015, that indeed started, you know, that process indeed advanced. At, so when we believe, so at the same time, you know, I, I sat listening, I thought Tim said it perfectly because this is the conundrum. Tim said it really perfectly when he said, these three countries have made it impossible to, to really pursue this engagement path in the, in the context of the summit. I mean, they've, they've made it impossible on themselves and, and, and the U.S. is the host country, I think, to invite them. And I think, and, and Richard said it perfectly as well when he held up the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which is clear as day, signed by every country in the hemisphere but Cuba, um, on, on what, the, what the charter actually says. Um, at the same time, because I, I'm so, uh, because we are pro-engagement and we look at, I think Richard, Richard also framed it really well in saying there's a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, how little time is left and there's been a lot of press. I'm sure everyone's seen it um, and concern over what's going to actually get done. We, I couldn't agree more with Richard. A lot's going to get done. There's going to be a lot get, to get done on, on all the issues I mentioned up front, Richard mentioned. And if you're not going to invite these three countries to the to the table for to the to the summit, we have such critical issues as a hemisphere we're trying to tackle that need everyone involved. Richard cited some of them. It starts with migration, but 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 also think about the the um, the um, human trafficking collaboration we 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 have with the Cubans that needs to be enhanced. Think about drug trafficking interdiction, um, but think beyond that to the big issues that we will we will tackle at the summit that need to be tackled um, as, as a hemisphere. Uh, they're existential really for this hemisphere in a lot of ways when you're talking about rebuilding uh, health infrastructure that uh, was weak to begin with and only ex- and, and, and its weakness was only exacerbated by the, by the pandemic. The, the green energy transition and the climate change uh, challenges that the hemisphere, is, starting with the Caribbean faces, is an existential crisis that needs all hands on deck. The, bridging the digital divide and ensuring that the, these countries are also um, part of part of the digital transformation of the hemisphere. I'll give a quick anecdote. We, we all one of the things Cuba has done to 
to let's just say shoot itself in the foot in this process is obviously the events of last July 11th. The rapprochement with Cuba in getting American tech companies and others onto the island, YouTube or uh, negotiated a contract with Atexa, the, the Cuban IT um, agency that restricted the regime from interdicting on the platform. And so when you see this, the, when you see the, the, the scenes from Havana, Santiago de Cuba, and around the island that ensued in the uprising, most of those are on YouTube because that was the one platform that the regime couldn't touch. I think that that's an apt anecdote to say, well, you know, if you sow the seeds of, of some, some economic freedom and some free enterprise and you empower entrepreneurs, um, that there, there are roots that can take place that can take that, that, that can take root for the for the longer term. Um, and I'm happy to I'm happy to let I'll turn the microphone back to you, Richard, and then happy to come back uh, and address R Richard Feinberg's question. Um, I know we're going to get now. we're going to get to you. Uh, I want to I want to have a specific question regarding the business um, uh, forum that you're going to be organizing um, at the summit. And we'll also talk about the civil society forum, which um, I'm going to be attending. Uh, I'd uh, like to see if we can get, maybe get some perspective from Tim. Yeah, hi, thanks. I, I, um, I, I think uh, Neil just made some really, really salient points there, um, particularly about uh, the Quinta Propistas, the, the private sector, the fledgling private sector in Cuba. And if we're not going to invite Cuba, um, I would turn to Richard's point that we should at least be inviting, if it's possible, some uh, element of the civil society cohort there in Cuba, in particular, Quinta Propistas, private entrepreneurs. And I say that because I think the U.S. just did something this week that really gives them a, 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 a card to play at, at the summit in this regard. OFAC, the Treasury Department, just green-lighted a license to a U.S. investor, uh, to his lawyer, we don't, so we don't really know who the actual investor is yet, but greenlit direct investment on the part of a U.S. investor directly to a private entrepreneur uh, in, in Cuba. And I, this is a long, long overdue development or a long overdue uh, uh, action on the part of the U.S. Because really, aside from the embargo, Helping the private sector, as as Neil was just out outlining outlining here, it's really the only engagement tool we have with Cuba. Because, as Neil pointed out, you know, you really don't have a robust dissident movement in Cuba. Although last July 11th sort of disproved, uh, you know, this this idea that that you don't have political opposition in Cuba. But the Quinta Propistas represent. Uh, that detachment of the ordinary Cuban from dependence and reliance on, on the Cuban state. The, the Quinta Propista represents uh, a certain independence from the regime. And uh, that, I, you know, of, of all of the reasons why Obama normalized relations with Cuba, I think that was the most important because it would give us a stronger foot in the door to help those propista, Quinta Propistas and then help them undermine the regime um, in a way there was an archbishop, uh, a bishop here in Miami before he died, um, once told me uh, he was a very big help to Oswaldo Paya. And he, he once told me 
that he told Paya, look, Cuba, the regime is never going to be taken down by a hurricane the way the exiles expected to, to happen here. He said, it's only going to be taken down by termite, termites gnawing at it for years and years. And that was how Oswaldo Paya, and these quintropropistas represent, at least to me, <laughs> that termite element gnawing away at the regime. And, and I think the more that we can do uh, with, with gestures like the OFAC license granting this week and, and at it, events like the summit to, to promote the US, not only the U.S. investing in Cuban quintapropistas and private entrepreneurs, but seeing how we can get the rest of the, the region, the rest of Latin America, into the act of helping those, those private entrepreneurs. Um, and, and, and so, I, again, I, I think Neil's, uh, you know, dead on uh, when, when he says that's, that's you know, one of the, uh, one of the most important uh, cards that I, I think we can play at this point. Before we turn to the, the expanded role of the private sector, Abe, do you want to give some reflections in terms of um, how the U.S. is going to manage the diplomatic fallout? I thought all the presentations were terrific, and Richard Feinberg in particular, I think, brought a lot of very uh, good constructive ideas together. Uh, the one thing I would like to say, given the opportunity, uh, is with respect to the whole issue of U.S.-Cuba relations going beyond whether Cuba is invited to this particular summit and so on. Uh, a couple of people made the point that uh, uh, that Cuba has been behaving in such a way as to make it impossible for the U.S. government to, to uh, continue the precedent of the last couple of summits and have Cuba present and behaving as a, the phrase I used was uh, uh, a modicum of, of uh, respect, and they, they behaved uh, with due respect at these uh, meetings. Uh, but uh, I'm struck that even, a, in, even in a discussion in which really all of the people who touched on Cuba did so with a great deal of knowledge uh, and, and insight, uh, still, even in, the, in that context, it's, it's very unbalanced. And I just gonna want to say this in a couple of sentences. One has to do with the idea that, that uh, Cuba made it impossible for the US to invite them. Understanding that refers to domestic politics as a, but uh, if we took a balance of the last 60 years, the number of things that the United States has done to Cuba that are, uh, that ought to be criticized vastly exceeds the number of things Cuba has done to the United States that needs to be criticized. But we, we, never, we never really put it in that context. Uh, the other thing is that uh, a lot of people, very good people, refer, as several people did in this context, to Obama's initiative to normalize relations with, with uh, Cuba. I think from the standpoint of thinking about the future and the strategies and, and the ways of reaching a mutually desirable position in Cuba's role in the Americas and, and at home and in the U.S.-Cuban relations, uh, we should take seriously the thought that this was not just uh, Barack Obama's initiative. It was a joint initiative uh, by Raul Castro and, and, uh, and Obama. 
and that what uh, Obama did took some political sagacity and courage. It also took political sagacity and probably more courage in the Cuban context for Raul Castro to basically announce to the Cuban people, to the Cuban Communist Party, to the international communist movement and to the world that he and Cuba's leadership now sees Cuba's future in terms of a mutually beneficial relationship with the United States. That it, 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 That's how Cuba should evolve. And we ought to understand that that's where they're coming from and design policies that, that encourage that direction uh, and that don't expect them to pay off totally in a few months, but that reinforce the various uh, currents that will make that a possibility. At this time, I want to I want to turn to a um, discussion topic that we've um, we've touched on, and this is the important role that the private sector could potentially play. And here, I'd like to hear from Neil if you could uh, talk more about the the role that um, the U, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is playing as as it chairs the CEO summit. You're the organizer for that summit. Can you talk about the role um, that um, that con- that companies from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela will play in the summit and and how they can maybe shape the narrative in the absence of their heads of state coming to LA? Yeah, thank you, Richard. It's a it's a really it's a fundamentally important question that we're focused on. I think um the State Department, um, Secretary Blinken and others have said this will be the most inclusive summit uh, in history. Um, and from our standpoint, you know, we 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 are we, we really take those words seriously, and and the, and it means a lot of different. It takes on a lot of different contexts for us, but but certainly one is to enhance to enhance the presence of um, SMEs and micro and, and small and medium sized enterprises. Um, in hemispheric trade and, and supply chains. I mean, it's critical. In the case of uh, the Cuenta Propistas, as, as Tim talked about, I think very effectively, um, the, you know, I think that it's, it's important, uh, as you said, Richard, the way you framed it, I think is, is really important. We, we see a responsibility, really is what it is, to try and fill the vacuum for a group of companies that, a group of entrepreneurs, um, that are a lot of times uh, that were, whose governments won't be present, obviously, but in, but are also succeeding against all odds in these markets. And so that's not just. So we're looking at um, at inviting. We we have invited uh, Cuban cuenta propistas, but also um, Venezuelan and Nicaraguan small business. Um, we're going to integrate them into conversations, certainly with with larger companies that from the from the entire region, so not just U.S. companies, multi Latinas from across the region, um, to see what opportunities there might be um, for some of these comp- for some of these SMEs to be involved in in hemispheric supply chains with with companies from countries that don't have sanctions regimes uh, like the U.S. does against Cuba. Right, that's one thing. The other thing we're excited about doing, really excited, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely encouraged by the potential of an idea we have that will, um, we have an SME, we're offering an SME training academy. So we will have um, some of the largest digital platforms in the world, uh, names very well known to all of you, um, uh, Meta, Facebook, Google, Amazon are all collaborating 
and we and, and in, in partnership with with us and the Inter-American Development Bank um, to do uh, basically a, a, a half a day long uh, SME training academy. Um, they're going to be trained in things like how do you increase your digital presence online? How do you um, approach cybersecurity? Um, how do you how do you grow your brands um, beyond your own borders? Um, what kind of digital tools for growth are available um, that most of these companies don't uh, know about? How do you increase traffic to your webpage, et cetera? So we're really excited about this as, as uh, we think an opportunity that's going to allow these and other SMEs uh, to be able to grow um, and, and have, have access to tools that they just haven't had. Um, and then I, I, I'd finally mention something that we, we are um, in the process of grounding. So, and I mentioned this because I know Richard, Richard is involved um, with a really important initiative, Richard Feinberg, with a really important initiative called the Alliance for Democracy, um, which is something we are really getting behind. The U.S. government's really getting behind. It's, a, it's, a, it's an initiative um, of the, um, the governments of Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, and Panama, and really focused on, in a large part, how are governments creating the conditions for businesses uh, to thrive and and how are we how are how are you know, when we're looking at opportunities like nearshoring when you what do strong institutions and and, and strong rule of law contract sanctity um, and sound investment climates what how what kind of opportunities do they present in terms of potentially leveraging opportunities like like nearshoring um, we think it's an interesting idea to maybe contrast what these governments are offering to their companies and, and, and other hemisphere companies in, in, in um, certainly that, that are competing across the region with these SMEs um, from Cuba, Nicaragua, and, and, and uh, Venezuela that, that not just don't ha you know, have a dearth of, of any support from, from their governments, but are often, often have adversarial relationships with their governments. What's the difference and where, where can the, you know, where can even these companies are succeeding against the odds, as I said, who who in, is there that can fill the gap when um, the governments are not, uh, when the governments are not providing these kinds of frameworks. And, and we believe we have a, a role to play in the, in the hemispheric private sector. And we also um, are anxious to, to partner with civil society in this, because we think together, um, that's where you fill the gap for these these um, businesses that are, that, that are, um, Really succeeding, and uh, but but against, uh, as I said a couple times, against really all the odds because their governments, if not if not being directly averse to them, um, certainly aren't there to support free enterprise. I'll leave it there. Yeah, Neil, thank you so much for those thoughts. Um, we're we're getting close to our time. We're going to run a few minutes over because I have one more question I want to ask. Um, and it relates to the LA summit, which will be uh, from June sixth through the tenth. Um, Abe spoke about um, global California. Um, we had a question from the audience about soft power. My question has to do with the potential for the United States to leverage California's soft power in the area of digital transformation, as Neil spoke about. Um, he, he referenced several California companies that are going to be active in the CEO summit. Uh, the innovation in California related to biosciences in energy transition and sustainability leadership. Um, want to get uh, maybe a few of you to, to comment on the, the potential that the um, administration has to 
perhaps change the narrative and leverage, again, California, um, global California as a way to help um, do that. Um, any thoughts? You know, I think um, I, I'm a native Californian too. I'm a, I'm a San Diegan, I'm proud to say. So it's great to be talking to a, a San Diego audience. Um, I, look, I, I think this did factor really prominently in the Biden administration's decision, Richard. And, and, and um, these are, the, I think this administration, I'll give them credit for understanding that a lot of the tools we have to solve some of our hemispheres problems are digital. And why? And 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 obviously, uh, and I no, with I want to make sure also that when we're talking about the the, the resilience of of health economies, that um, you know my hometown San Diego has is is the hub of bioscience. So I just want to put that plug in there too. So I think they understand that um, both in the health sector, in the health space, and in the digital space, there you won't find an economy like California that can bring digital tools and and health tools to the table. Why are digital tools so important? Just really quickly, they solve three different problems. One, they enhance growth, um, and two, they in, 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 in enhance um, inclusion, and three, they enhance transparency. Right? Critical problems are that are hemisphere which is suffering from an uh, inequity um, and lack of transparency and and uh, stagnant growth is facing richard you had uh, some okay yeah sure i'll make a few a few relative comments yeah you know i think the administration of course they clearly decided not to hold it in miami so as not to uh, make the issue of the, the three authoritarian regimes even more central. Uh, the key, of course, with any big event is to control the narrative. And that's where the administration hasn't done very well so far because they, they haven't been willing to put out there, all right, this is the agenda, which is not just naming a, a few topics, but here's what we're going to accomplish. Uh, uh, so they, they've got to do, they've got to get on top of this uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, because otherwise, other people uh, start controlling the narrative, which is what AMLO has started to do. Now, once people get to LA, I mean, suddenly the Los Angeles economy alone, not to mention California, is bigger by far than the combined economies of the three impoverished countries that we are focused on. Uh, I love Havana, but oh my God, it's so totally decayed. Uh, Caracas has gone so downhill. Managua never was. Uh, so uh, the contrast between all the attention to these three sad, impoverished places and the vibrancy and the excitement of Los Angeles and of California will immediately become apparent to all the delegates. And they'll suddenly say, oh, all this talk about Cuba. I mean, come on. We were so off center. <laughs> we were so like not in the 21st century. Uh, and, and L.A. is so exciting. And that's the world that we want to be part of. That's the world that we want to integrate with and work with uh, through all of the uh, tools that, that we've been talking about here. Uh, now, there may be a couple of challenges in L.A., and let, let's see. Uh, there are a lot of uh, civil society groups there who may be on the march, and they, they see an opportunity to make their voices heard. Uh, I have to assume that the administration advanced team is on top of this. I know they're working, of course, with the various political powers that be uh, in LA, the mayor, et cetera. So I have to assume they've, they've, they've found ways uh, to channel uh, these energies and voices uh, in LA uh, in, in constructive ways. And, and have, but I know Biden's, um, I'm told, plans to spend uh, at least two, two and a half days there. Uh, certainly the vice president, 
um, uh, of course, is from California. So there should be a, a large scale political presence uh, from Washington in uh, Los Angeles as well. So all of this should um, create a, a sense of, of, of excitement. So long as the administration can get control of the narrative, as people have been saying, and really put some media initiatives out there. Jim, do you have any uh, thoughts uh, before we give the final sure, word? Sure, I, I, I didn't jump in at first because, because the heart of the question had to do with the digital uh, arena and I'm not the right person to speak about that. It's, you know, it's still a mystery to me. But, but uh, uh, if you just take a couple of issue areas, and the point about this is not just a couple of issue areas, but there are probably 10 issue areas that you could say this about, but just for the purpose of time. One being a response to climate change, and the second being response to immigration uh, and the integration of immigrants and and the positive attitudes and policies uh, regarding immigration. Uh, California is just, uh, you know, really a leader uh, on these issues. Uh, and the institutions of California, universities, research institutions, uh, uh, political groupings, uh, private sector, and so on and so forth, are they're all kind of, you know, of course there's some differences of opinion, but that the basically there's an alignment with the future uh, on those issues that is very impressive that I think is something which uh, just will feed on the uh, discussions at the summit, uh, but also will impress the those who come to uh, California and use the opportunity to educate themselves a little bit about what it's uh, about. I, I noticed, uh, I myself was not only born, brought up and educated, but had the first half of my career on the Atlantic coast of the United States. And I have been personally fascinated. That's one of the reasons I got into what I did and, and then did this book on global California. Uh, but let alone internationally, even from the Atlantic coast of the United States, there is still a tremendous time lag in understanding uh, what California represents in terms of innovation and experimentation, et cetera. Uh, and uh, uh, one East Coast institution after another, in my experience, uh, understands it needs to be linked with California uh, and then sets up some sort of activity in San Francisco because they feel comfortable there. The, the, the San Francisco works like an Atlantic Coast city. <laughs> and it has kind of a, a culture that comes out of that uh, out of that heritage, when in fact it's places like Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, and the agricultural valleys and so on, uh, which are the spear points of innovation in California. Thank you for that. Tim, we're going to give you the final word. Any thoughts um, about um, the summit in LA and the role that California can play in terms of, of um, its soft power? And, and helping to um, improve the narrative. Yes, I, I would agree with Abe. I, I think immigration, when it comes down to it, I really do think, aside from all the democracy and, and digital issues, et cetera, that we've been discussing, I think there's no more important issue at this particular summit than immigration. Uh, largely because, and, and, and as Abe pointed out, I think California is, is sort of strongly and uniquely positioned to address that issue, more so, for example, than, than, than my community of Miami here. 
And I, I think the reason it's so important, it's important not only in the American context and the crisis we're dealing with on our own border, but since the last summit in Peru, I think you've seen the rest of this hemisphere deal with the same kind of immigration crisis issues that we have been chronically dealing with. Countries like Chile, countries like Brazil in the past five or six years, suddenly seeing influxes of of Haitian migrants, Venezuelan migrants, Mexico, um, uh, for example, dealing with its immigration crisis as an outgrowth of of all of this that that it's never seen before. And I think this, this whole concept of how can this the United States and the rest of this hemisphere start confronting immigration at its sources instead of at their borders uh, really should be the central question of this summit, given what not just the United States, but the rest of this hemisphere has gone through on the immigration front in the past five or six years. Thank you, Tim. Well, with that, um, I think we're going to uh, call it a wrap. I want to thank um, um, Abe, Neil, Tim, and Richard for excellent uh, perspectives on the Summit of the Americas related to um, sanctioned countries. I also want to thank all of the participants um, of our forum that have um, attended the last two days. I also want to thank UCTV for being our media co-sponsor and for their work in helping to transmit this forum on their cable channel. Um, I look forward to seeing many of you at future Institute of America's events. And, um, and hope that we will have a chance to um, enrich the discussion related to uh, the sanctioned countries as it relates to the Summit of the Americas, as hopefully many of you uh, come to LA to attend the summit. So thank you, and um, we'll see you at the next event. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.